0: Amen. 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 Thank you, worship team, as usual. Build it. Come on. Let's build the church together. But we are in a series this summer, started it last week, called Conversations, right? Dialogue with the divine. Hitting on different narratives in Scripture where people maybe talk with God. Like last week, it was Cain and God in Genesis. And this week, we're going to look at Jesus and his encounter and conversation with a blind man in Mark chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles, if you're here, if you're online, maybe you've got a paper copy, maybe you're swiping there on your phone, you can head to Mark chapter 8. But as you do that, let me again welcome you as David did to City Life. Maybe it's your first time. Maybe you're new here. Maybe you're in the pews. Maybe you're online. No matter how you're tuning in or how long you've been coming, simply want to welcome you here tonight. Because again, as we mentioned it last weekend... In the past year of disconnect, in the past year of COVID, if it's taught us anything, it's that coming together and connecting and having conversations as humans is more than just an itch we got to scratch. It's what makes us healthy human beings. It's why online church, right, is a full-time ministry here. Now, that's why Chandler and Jesse are on the other side of this building producing the live stream that's being sent out right now to people all over. Shout out to the people over in Europe, if you're watching again tonight, but all over the place, viewing online church, not just tonight, but throughout the week. And it's also why Zoom has gone from like a year ago, I was like, what's Zoom? Is that like an app on your phone, like a a game the kids are playing these days? Now it's a household name. We, We Zoom all the time to connect with people and have conversations, and we embrace all these new ways of technology because again, we we don't want to go without connecting and conversing with other human beings. We were created by God to connect and have conversations. He spoke us into existence, and we who were created in his image, we were created to speak and converse with each other and with him. But as much as Zoom as much as technology and all its forms has helped us through COVID, we should be mindful that technology can also serve as a hindrance as we come back together again. What do I mean? Well, as we prepare for this series called Conversations, and we've been talking about it, I've been you know, praying about it, my mind went back to a book that was written about a half decade ago now called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle. It's about the lost art of face-to-face intimate human conversation, as in, why have we become so bad at it? What she shared is she found that through much study, that real, authentic, deep conversation takes about seven minutes to get going. Basically, intimate conversations take about seven minutes to really take off. For that first seven minutes, it's chit-chat, did you watch the game last night, all the standard give and take, back and forth, how you doing, until finally, about seven minutes in on average, somebody takes a risk, right? It expresses an emotion, has an observation, presents a deep question. She says the issue with our devices is that they interrupt conversation. And conversation interrupted doesn't just develop more slowly, it stays shallow because you start over again and again as you allow each other to tend to your devices. I mean, like, if you're with me and my wife calls, I'm going to get to that, right? But there's so many times where we just back and forth, back and forth. And the end result is we never get to that seven-minute mark. We never actually enter into a, a, a healthy, deep conversation with another. She wrote elsewhere, digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. The illusion without the demand. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. She isn't lying about that. We, we'd rather text than talk. It was years ago now, before this book was written, that texting became more uh, common in the U.S. than calling. And I'm riding that wave. Like if I text you a question, it's a yes or no answer, and you call me back I feel personally attacked. Like maybe it's my, I'm an Enneagram five, right? And maybe it's just my personality. I'm like, hey, this this could have been a simple, why are you calling me, (laughs) right? I don't know if if that's just me, thank you. Or how about like, you're about to have a, a big meeting. Maybe it's for work. Maybe it's just in relationship with somebody. Maybe it's a family member, coworker, whatever. It's been on the calendar for weeks. You know, you're gonna be meeting for 90 minutes. You're gonna be going deep into some conversation, some interaction. If I'm going to do that, I'm going to prepare, just notes. If I'm going to be talking to this person, these are the questions I want to ask. These are the things I want to mention. Because if if I'm setting aside time with you to meet over something, I I want to uh, respect that time and come prepared and not just walk in and wing it. Anybody do that too? Big meetings, big moments, big conversations. What's wild is Craig Rochelle. he wrote a book called Struggles which is, again, about technology. And he's in a room with a bunch of teenagers just talking, conversing, and surveying. And he was talking to one of them, and they were like, yeah, I will write down an entire page verbatim of what I want to say word for word before ordering a pizza. And he was like, are you serious? And he was like, does anybody else do this? And hands shot up all around the room. And why is this? Well, for one, we've learned to write our thoughts in texts. We've learned to write our thoughts out in comments where we can present ourselves edited and polished. That's why texts are preferred over phone calls, because in phone calls, in in voice to voice, face to face conversations, you might trip over your words. You might say something dumb, have to put your foot in your mouth. Right. We like control over risk. So we choose edited over authentic. And the issue that arises if you take away connecting intimately, face to face and even voice to voice, can you really connect heart to heart in the same way? Because we find in life that authenticity is what helps provide intimacy. You can't have intimacy without honesty and authenticity. And if we punt honest authenticity, can we really, as this book says, reclaim conversation and not just with each other, but with God Again, we weren't just created for conversation and connection with each other. We were created for conversation with God, connection with God, and communion and relationship with God. I think of the fact it says in the Old Testament of Moses that when they set up the tabernacle, the Israelites would watch him enter in to to be with God and meet with God. They said as face-to-face as somebody would meet with a friend. But then I also think about how in the New Testament, in John 1, 14, it reads literally that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The tabernacle was this place of sacrifice, of meeting with God, where Moses would meet with God intimately. And Jesus, through his sacrifice, has set himself up as the mediator, the meeting place and the high priest between us and God. As it says in Hebrews 4, this is the message version. It says, now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. See, connecting with other people, uh, uh, FaceTiming and Zooming, there's an app for that connecting with with God in a way that's so intimate that the Bible could say it's like being face-to-face. There was a sacrifice for that. Jesus died for that. That should change the way we pray. That should change the way we live. But I think if I'm honest, if we're honest, then more often than we'd like to admit, life becomes crowded, life becomes busy, and God can just kind of become another face in the crowd, another thing to do. But to consider the other side of that coin, I don't think any of us would say, we wanna be another face in the crowd to Jesus, right? None of you sitting here tonight online are just another face in the crowd to Jesus. We wouldn't want that. Praise God that he pursues us. Praise God that he initiates and he's gracious. But tonight I wanna look at a a blind man who was pulled from the crowd into Jesus's presence to be healed. The beginning of my heading, it's in in Mark 8, verse 22. It says, Jesus heals a blind man. I'm gonna read through verse 26. It says when they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hand on the man's eyes again And his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. And Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that before we go home tonight, we would be reminded again that we are not just some face in the crowd to you. Jesus, you died for each person here, each person viewing. And God, I pray that we would truly grasp those implications for our life. Your love, your grace, your mercy. I pray that as we read in, in Hebrews 4, God, that we would take the mercy and accept the help in this place. Wherever we need it, God, we, I pray that you would speak through your word and the Holy Spirit a word tonight to each person in every season. In Jesus' name, amen. But speaking of seasons... We are currently in the heart of the NBA Finals. National Basketball Association, they're playing. Is is there any uh, Milwaukee Bucks or Phoenix Suns fans in the building tonight? Exactly. Didn't think so. Maybe there are some online. Bucks, Suns are playing for the Finals. I don't share this because I thought y'all would be hype over the Suns and the Bucks. I share this because this time last year, there were no fans in the stands. The NBA Finals was being played in front of like monitors where people's faces were projected, but it was otherwise empty. It was pretty, pretty wild. But this year, fans are back, right? Fans are back in full force. And uh, this hasn't been without some messy incidents along the way. In fact, there were so many incidents with people crossing boundaries with players and, and literally going onto the court while the game's going on. It's like during COVID people just forgot how to go into public and into crowds and how to act. Like, they just lost their minds. Somebody was dumping popcorn on Russell Westbrook. Somebody ran onto a court during game to slap the backboard. And in New York, at Madison Square Garden, as the Atlanta Hawks star Trey Young was getting set to inbound a ball, a fan stood up behind him, two rows behind him, and spat on him. Just hawked a loogie right onto Trey Young. Crazy stuff. The Knicks banned the man from the arena, calling it completely unacceptable and not tolerated. Then the NBA released a statement reminding people to honor and respect the dignity of the players. Like the NBA had to put out a release to remind people, hey, y'all should probably dignify other human beings. <laughs> it's because there's something about spitting on somebody that's just blatantly disrespectful, right? especially to their dignity. So I share that coming out of Mark 8, because I think some of us, maybe we've been to church Right, we've read our Bibles. You've read this story over and over to the point where like, you read it, you're just kind of skimming over it like a jet ski on the ocean. Right, You're just kind of skimming over it with your morning coffee, and you miss some of these details. Like if gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right, loving and gracious Jesus, straight up spitting in a blind man's face who can't even see it coming, doesn't make you say, oh, time out. What just happened? Your imagination is broken, right? Your imagination is just broke. And in this very brief, one-exchange conversation between Jesus and this blind man, there's seemingly not a whole lot here, and the context can be kind of confusing. But in the context of this story, we got to look at the greater context of the Gospel of Mark, because it's important. This incident happens smack dab in the middle at the heart of the Gospel of Mark. And if you were to study Mark and, and commentary on Mark, the first half of the book, the Gospel of Mark, is about who Jesus was. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, and people coming to that revelation. Now, the second half of Mark is about how he was going to walk this out, that he would have to suffer and die. And right here in the pivot here in Mark 8, in fact, right after this episode with the blind man, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And I want to read verses 28 through 34 because it says, excuse me, verse 27, as they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to tell them that the son of man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. See, when Peter confesses, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the one who we've been waiting for. He's confessing what we've come to at this point in Mark. He's confirming who Jesus is. But then Jesus pivots immediately to how he was going to suffer and die. And it says that Peter, right, takes him aside to rebuke him. And it's where we get the famous words of Jesus, right? Get behind me, Satan. You know, we we joke at Peter in moments like this because he, he can seem just dense. <laughs> like like he, he, he speaks up seemingly out of turn. He says some wild stuff. He can seem dense. Like, what are you doing, Peter? But the vision that the Jews had been clinging to for centuries was that when the Messiah came, he was going to usher in a national kingdom that would displace their oppressors, in this case, the Romans, and the Jews, and the disciples, And Peter himself can all seem, again, impossibly dense in the Gospels as Jesus tries to tell them again and again, hey, this is how this is going to happen. This is what's going to play out. And they seemingly don't get it again and again. It's not that they're dumb, right? It's that they were blinded by hundreds of years of built up expectation, centuries of expectation about who the Messiah was going to be. They couldn't see any possibility of their Messiah going out like Jesus was talking about any more than this blind guy could see his surroundings. Now, again, when you study the book of Mark, you study its, its structure. Most uh, uh, commentaries talk about Mark 8, 27 to Mark 10:52. They're known as what's the discipleship section of Mark. It's where Jesus begins to be honest and speak openly, as we just read, about how his life would end and what it would look like to follow him. And this section from, from Mark 8 to Mark 10 in these verses, it's bookended by blind men coincidence? I don't think so. And on the other side of each account of this blind man we read about at the beginning of Mark 8, right before that is an account where Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and he says to them, you have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? Translation, are you blind? (laughs) So we don't know why for sure, I don't. I can't tell you for sure why Jesus spits on this, this man to heal him, right? That's something we got to ask him in heaven, right? When we get to watch the gospels, like not just some movie form, we get to just watch it play out with popcorn. Like I look forward to that, just literally watching the Bible in heaven. But anyways, Mark, <laughs> under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing his gospel, seemingly suggests to us, this isn't just only about this individual blind man. This brief conversation Jesus has with him That's basically just a question and an answer is in the midst of a much greater ongoing conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples about how he would be the Messiah. It's like a living, acted out commentary on the condition of the disciples. And that's some much needed context because, again, this passage is kind of confusing. Again, Jesus spitting in this man's face. Like, again, let's just use our imagination. Like, you can imagine the newspaper the next day, the Bethsaida Times probably had a headline that said Spitgate, right? The the the, the Pharisee paparazzi, the, the ferrarazzi, whatever you want to call them, they probably had a, a photo they snapped right as the, the spit was in between Jesus' puckered lips and this man's unsuspecting face, right? The, the horror. Because this NBA incident isn't some uh, new issue with spitting in our out-of-control culture, no. I mean, you could go back. A couple hundred years, a story I love in American history because we so often think politicians these days are crazy, right? Listen to this. Uh, February 15th, 1798, there was a debate about diplomacy with France in U.S. Congress. And at one point, the Vermont representative, Matthew Lyon, he spit a mouthful of tobacco juice into the face of Connecticut representative Roger Griswold. Griswold, furious over what he called a gross indecency, later attacked Lyon with his cane. And this is where it gets good. Lyon grabbed a pair of fire tongs. And the two had like a little duel in the middle of Congress before they were broken up and expelled from Congress. And you can rewind further, not just centuries, but thousands of years. Go all the way back to Jewish culture. Spitting on someone wasn't seen much differently. In Deuteronomy, we see if a man didn't take his brother's childless widow in, she was to spit in his face. In Numbers 12, we see if a father were to spit on his daughter's face, she would be in disgrace and put out of camp for seven days. And in the accounts of Job and in the writings of Isaiah, we see that they were objects of insults and spitting because spitting was an insult in that culture, much like it still is today. So then you get back to Jesus. What's going on? And it's one of three times that he uses spit to heal. In Mark 7, he spits on his fingers before touching a deaf man's ears. In John 9, he spits on the ground to make some mud and apply it to a blind man's eyes. But here again, he spits directly on this man. Why does he do it? Because spitting in the face of somebody was a disgraceful act. But just moments later, Jesus was about to give the disciples shocking news that he was going to die a disgraceful death, handed over to the Romans by the high priests and religious leaders who were going to spit in his face. Death by crucifixion was the the ultimate mark of disgrace in Roman culture. And spitting in the face of somebody was, was like a slap in the face in that culture. And his statement that he would be killed in Jerusalem was also like a slap in the face to Peter and the people that were following him because they had confessed Jesus was the Messiah. And this idea that the Messiah would go and die in this way was, was appalling to them. But this wasn't even all that Jesus was saying. In his exchange, Jesus isn't just saying that he would face persecution and insults. He's saying, no, you, my followers, you too will face troubles. His disciples should expect the same and This had to be jarring for some of them. Because you know there were some people in this crowd, in his following, even amongst his disciples, who again were clinging to this idea that the Messiah would rise to power, and they were going to get some positions in this kingdom. And here they're told, no, think again. Again, Jesus says in verse 34, right after this episode, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. See, Jesus wants us to follow him faithfully, he wants us to know him intimately. But Jesus here rallying his his followers to himself. He compares it to crucifixion. Right. Deny yourself. Get over your own comfort. Right? Take up your cross. There might be pain on this journey, but follow me. I don't know that any like social media influencer or pop culture leader would would point to crucifixion when they're trying to like up their followers and and gain more influence. But God is honest with us. Jesus is honest with us. He's authentic because, again, there's no intimacy without honesty and authenticity. And our infinite God wants intimate relationship with us. So he's honest with us. And Jesus, in his honesty, he's again telling us that following God will take denying ourselves, even to the point of occasional discomfort. We have to embrace a lifestyle where every once in a while, God might call us to something that makes us uncomfortable I mean, you read Mark 8, like this is like straight up disturbing, this encounter with the blind man. But sometimes as you follow God, you'll step into moments like this. And see, I share this because so often like counseling people, or even just in my own life, like when trouble comes, when trouble comes, we so often like our faith gets flustered because we think trouble shouldn't be here. Like what is trouble doing here? (laughs) Like uh, if this is God's will, it shouldn't be here. And then if trouble lingers... Or if the pain becomes persistent or chronic, right? We, we think, man, something must be wrong. So we become obsessed with the why. Like, is all this trouble because I'm missing the mark, right? Like, is my life off the rails? Or even worse, is, is God off the job? Is his love not what I, I thought it was? Do I not have the requisite faith to, like, pull myself out of this trouble? We think, man, this can't be God's will. there's Something's got to be wrong. But Jesus would say, no, I, I honestly prepared you for this. In John 16, he says, look, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world, right? Your calling might be uncomfortable. Your purpose might prove painful. Your ministry is probably going to be messy, but trouble doesn't mean that your life is off the rails or you're somehow off course. Some, so often we get paralyzed. We think, man, something's wrong. Pause, time out because trouble's here. No, no, no. It's par for the course. You can have peace and joy even in the storm because Jesus said, yeah, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world, and I'm never going to leave or forsake you. See, if, if you parent really any child, any child, one gift you can give them is helping them set expectations or adjust expectations. Like if it's the first day of school, you're just going to, you know, give them a This is what this is going to look like. Or, or maybe it's the first time they're going to go to summer camp. Or, or, or maybe it's something as simple as you're going to the grocery store. You know, they're going to ask for every piece of candy, and you're like, you're getting one piece. Or you might be saying you ain't getting any, but you set that expectation ahead of time. And even more so with, with children who have been adopted or come from traumatic backgrounds, like you had to account for fear and inappropriate reactions when they face a new and challenging situation. But you can set them up to succeed by giving them a script of about what's, what's about to happen so they, they can know how to handle themselves. It helps them set expectations. It helps remove the fear of the unknown and it can prevent stress when the situation unfolds. Now, does it work all the time? <laughs> like parenting is an exact science. But but Jesus, in effect, God being a good father, is walking this out with his followers like a good parent would with their kids. Look, what's about to happen, it might be jarring, it might be uncomfortable. It might even be troubling, but I'm never going to leave or forsake you. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is going to be with you and in you. And in a much grander scale, Jesus is also preparing us, his future followers, for the reality to come. There might be as much pain as there is fame this side of heaven. Again, there might be troubles that come along with your great triumphs. There might be discomfort as you walk in your calling. But he's being authentic and honest with us on the front end. So no trouble can derail the intimacy he wants to have with us in every season. Again, so often trouble comes, we think, oh, God must be distant. God isn't here. No, Jesus is like, I prepared you for this. I'm standing right beside you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. We can do this. We don't have to pull back and be like, where is God in this? Because we can remember he didn't just foretell it. He promised to be with us in it. But as we're talking about preparation, again, you pivot from the disciples to this blind guy and you're like, why didn't he give him like a little warning? about like how this is going to happen. Like when you get shots, they're like, this might sting a little bit, right? They prepare you for what's about to happen when, when they're going to help you. Why didn't Jesus like, hey, hey, buddy, uh, I'm going to spit on you. You know, just, this is what's about to happen. We don't know. It says he, he walks outside the village with him. Maybe they're, they're talking along the way. We don't really know. Maybe he's asking, hey, did you see the game last night? You got any kids? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. But we do know that in, in 60 plus conversations in the book of Mark, Jesus asks no less than 50 questions. This means that while Jesus, all-knowing, omniscient, it says he knew like the Pharisees' thoughts sometimes. He knew everything. He didn't need to ask questions. But he still asks 50 plus questions, and we see that he still longed for honest conversation with people. Jesus already had all the information, but he valued intimate conversation and interaction with other people. You see, just as God is honest with us, Jesus is asking all these questions and he shows that he wants the same from us. Honest answers, authenticity, transparency. See, when we get to the question recorded in Mark chapter 8, it's got to be one of the most important moments in this guy's life. Because how he answered would determine the rest of his life. Like Jesus asks him, hey, can you see anything now? And if he said, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I I can see a little bit, I I think I got it from here, he would have stayed like that. I mean, technically, the guy wasn't blind anymore. He was kind of like legally blind, right? Where the DMV would use that to keep roads safe or whatever. This man was no longer completely blind. He, he could see. It's just people look like trees. I mean, you can't, you know, distinguish humanity from plant life. You probably shouldn't be behind a wheel. But, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 speaks to our present predicament this side of eternity when it says we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. And this applies to all of us. We're squinting through a fog, peering through a mist. If we're perfectly honest, cloudy spiritual vision can affect all of us to some degree. None of us see as clearly as we would like to or walk in perfect clarity. This is where the Sermon on Faith comes in, right? That's a different sermon for another time, but that's why we walk by faith, not by sight. But what this blind man experienced physically, we all walk in spiritually. We all have spiritual nearsightedness to one degree or another. Blind spots, blurry vision, Areas of our life that aren't fully developed yet, be it spiritually or emotionally. And the problem in most cases is is we're so hesitant to admit it. We don't like to be honest about it. We don't like to ask for help. But what saves the man in this story, you could say Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer, right? Jesus technically heals him. Jesus saves the man. But this is the first time we see Jesus ask the recipient of his miracle about its effectiveness, Right. We know Christ didn't ask him again so that he could get information he didn't already know. Christ was wasn't seeking information. He was seeking honesty and honest answer. And ultimately, honesty is what brought this man complete healing. He could have said again, yeah, I got it from here. I think I'm good. I just got to rub my eyes a little bit, maybe put some vising. in it. People look like plants, but you're good. You're good. He would have never walked in full healing. I mean, you think about it. Jesus was batting a thousand on miracles up to this point. Like he didn't miss. Are you going to be the first person that says to Jesus, actually, uh, I think you screwed up. <laughs> like, do you say that to God in the flesh? Uh, well, actually, I can't see well. But see, if honesty is what brings this man healing, I have to ask myself, am I being honest with God? And that may seem like a dumb question. You're like, hey, read Psalm 139, right? He, he knows your thoughts. He knows, your, he knows everything about you. He knows the things you're going to pray before you pray it. But you know who also knows a lot about Me. Me. <laughs> You know who also knows a lot about you? You. And how often are we less than honest with ourselves in terms of what we're wrestling with, what we're feeling, what our emotions are? We'd rather sweep that under the proverbial rug. I mean, this is almost like part two to the sermon on effective conversion and and, and becoming responsible for our emotional health and development from weeks or a month ago. You know, in that sermon, I almost shared this quote from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and I didn't, so I'll share it now. He says, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. The question is, do we take that voice and offer it to God in conversation? And I know sometimes I hesitate because if I'm honest, sometimes my voice is raw. (laughs) My voice is frustrated, angry, calloused cynical, dare I say sometimes PG-13, but I've had to learn to be honest anyways because God can handle those raw feelings. In fact, I found and I truly believe that God would rather us explode at him in prayer than turn inward and implode apart from him. He cares too much and he can handle anything we throw at him. He would rather I explode in prayer than say, you know what, I'm going to try to handle this and then implode elsewhere. He wants honesty He wants transparency because he wants intimate relationship with us. But we're not always good with honesty, right? Our course is all, I'm good, I'm good, I got this. And part of it is no doubt just the culture we live in. You know, in our social media platforms and just life in general these days, we edit, we crop, we filter, we forfeit transparency. What's missing is honesty. And I'm not saying, like, you break the ninth commandment. When all you post is highlights, like I'm not gonna be out here tomorrow posting like Raj's tantrums or like when he slapped that kid at the park or whatever. Like I'm not just gonna start posting all his worst moments. Like it's natural. Like I want to post Raj smiling because he's a beautiful kid and I love him to death. Or I'm not saying that when you use that new filter on TikTok that makes you look like 10 years younger, that you're a liar or or, or you're dishonest. But as a domino effect in life, we can lose honesty and transparency. It's the digital expression of a question that's always haunted humanity since the fall. Like, what would they think if they saw the real me? Adam and Eve, after, after sinning and realizing they were naked, they cover themselves up in fig leaves. And it says they hide, thinking, man, what, would, what will God think when he sees the real me, the way I truly am? And in many ways, filters have replaced fig leaves as we hide what we might be ashamed of. And we do it. The same way in the church but instead of filters its facades right we keep up appearances and try to look like we have it all together it's the age-old trap that the pharisees walked in clean the outside of the dish but never the inside to offer that up for god to heal and what's dangerous is eventually like the pharisees you start buying your own lie that you've got it all together and you start looking down on people whose lives are messy i'd much rather be a part of a church where we're honest about our mess and we point to the god who meets us in our mess and, and died while we were still messy, as it says in Romans 5:8, while we were still sinners, and we praised Him and worshipped Him together. But in our culture, we like to post pictures without the blemishes, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that begins to be taking root is never let them see you sweat, <laughs> never let them see you bleed, never let them see you cry, never let them see your mess. But you know what John writes to the church in his epistle is: if we claim to have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. Like you can be dishonest with people, you can't be dishonest with God. He he knows, again, I've heard it said in the lyric, you quote the devil when you say you're okay. But a beautiful truth of the gospel is, again, Jesus died for us while we were still messy, while we were still sinners. It's okay to not be okay. But spiritual maturity doesn't mean perfection. It means I recognize those messy areas and those areas that aren't okay, and I'm honest about them, and I submit them to God. Spiritual maturity is not graduating from your need for grace. It's growing in awareness of the many ways I need it day by day and offering that up to God again and again. You know, my son, he actually made his way through here (laughs) during worship. He's mostly nonverbal. And uh, I ask him all the time, hey, you need help or you got it? Because if you've met my son, (laughs) we go on hikes. He's trying to pick up rocks like as big as his torso he likes, he, he loves his, his toy animals. He'll, he'll go up for bedtime. He's trying to carry like 18 of them. You know, he picks up one, he drops three more, picks up one, he drops three more. And I, I, I'm always like, hey, you need help or you got it? And I never really expect an answer because he's, he's, he's been nonverbal all this time. And, and, and recently, though, he started saying stuff back. Like, and now I realize how much I ask him <laughs> because sometimes it'll be like, dot it. And he just will not look at me. He's like, dad, go away. <laughs> dot it. Other times, though, he says elp, Right? And he turns to me, he's like, hey, help me carry all these animals, man. I'm trying to get upstairs in my bath. <laughs> He'll say, got it. He'll say, help. That's huge for him. That's development for him, developmentally and cognitively. But, you know, for us, learning to ask for help is growth spiritually. Dare I say psychologically. You know, psychologists would tell you that we're so bad at asking for help for three reasons. We're just hardwired to want to do it ourselves. We're terrified of giving up control. And deep down, we're afraid that somebody will say no. Like, you ask for help. And they're like, nah. Nah. You're on your own. Neuroscientists would tell you that reaching out for help can trigger the same brain regions as physical pain due to all these fears. But you know what? Social psychologists have found that these fears are often misplaced as we wildly (laughs) underestimate the odds that others will, will actually help us. People say yes, far more than we fear. And that's when we're asking imperfect people. How much more when we ask our perfectly loving God for help? Our loving Father for help. But the enemy loves for us to get paralyzed by this lie that God is looking for perfect people. No, God is looking for honest people. Again, we talked last week about Cain. You go back to Adam when when he and Eve had sinned. He doesn't come to them with condemnation and a a gavel. No, he comes to them with questions. When, When Cain had murdered his brother, God doesn't come out of the clouds roaring with condemnation. He comes to him with questions. Just as we talked about last week, it's because he wants us to open our hearts and honestly, transparently, authentically accept his grace. Again, spiritual maturity, it's not about graduating from our need for grace, but it's becoming and growing in our awareness of the many ways I need it day in and day out and being mature enough to ask God for help in it. God, I'm tempted right now. God, I'm afraid right now. I'm worrying right now. I'm hopeless right now. God, I'm angry right now. I don't think I can do this. God, I'm broken. That's the beauty of the cross. He died so we can be honest and broken when we come to him. We open with Hebrews 4. Again, we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. It says, come right up to him. Take the mercy. Accept the help. But I got the worship team come up to close. Maybe you're still calling time out. (laughs) Like, can can we rewind a little bit? Because when you read Mark 8, there's a detail we, again, shouldn't skip over and skim over. Because it seems like it takes Jesus two, two attempts to heal the blind man. Like, that's not normal. Like, what, what's up? Was, did he, was he, like, sleep deprived? He was having a hard day? Was this a particularly hard case? Did he not get enough spit on him the first time? Like, did he not lay his hands in the right place? Did he pray the wrong prayer in his head? Like, why did Jesus this time have to do it twice? Right, like, was there not sufficient faith and power in that moment? And we know the answer is no to all of the above. It's not like Jesus tried and failed the first time. But again, this points to the disciples. Do you see anything, prefaces the question Jesus would ask Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter's correct confession that Jesus is the Christ, it reflects the vision and sight of the disciples. But it also shows that they they see the truth about Jesus and he's the Messiah, but their sight was only partial. They needed something else. They didn't yet understand the path that Jesus was taking and the path that he was calling them to. They're like the blind man when Jesus put his eyes on him the first time. They were believers. They left their lives to follow Christ. But the question that remained is would they deny themselves, take up their cross, and walk the path of discipleship? And the question remains for us, will we? Maybe tonight you find yourself like the disciples. You're standing in belief, but maybe you're not yet fully following. Here at... City Life, we talk all the time about the 12 spiritual disciplines. We just call them 12 pathways because we believe if you're following Christ, you will walk in these pathways, in these spiritual disciplines. And sometimes, I think fasting, giving, and reaching, which is synonymous with evangelism, those are sometimes the first three to go. When we start leaning back into our comfort, we forget we're called to deny ourselves daily or accountability Right, if you're if you wanna stay comfortable, you're not gonna to come to people with your raw emotions or maybe where you've stumbled and you need grace. The question that remained for the disciples is, is would they deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus on the path he was calling them to? And the question remains for us, will we? And even if you're on that path, even if you're plugging away, you're being faithful. Again, like it says in First Corinthians, sometimes it's hard from time to time when you're trying to run a race and you don't see with perfect clarity. But I love that, that the Bible still gives us a prescription. <laughs> you wanna fix your eyes? Hebrews 12:2 says, fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. As it reads in one translation, we focus our attention onto Jesus. His example is this, because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross. We may endure some things in this life, but how did Jesus do it? Because of the joy set before him of intimate relationship, not just with God the Father where he sits at the right hand right now, but with each one of us. Come on, as we press forward this week, whether you're walking on a, a mountaintop or you're in a valley, may we leave this place fixing our eyes on Jesus, who was able to endure the cross for the joy set before him, including relationship with you. Jesus, I pray tonight that you would remind us that you are at the, the, the right hand of the Father, and you walk in victory. And God, no matter what trouble we're experiencing now, God, it's the trouble of John 16, We can take heart, you've overcome the world we can take heart because you you are sitting in victory and we get to walk in victory you experience resurrection power we get to walk in resurrection power so Jesus I, I pray that you would remind us of where you are seated right now but I also pray that you will remind us that just as you are infinitely powerful you want to be powerfully and profoundly intimate with us You want conversation and communion and relationship with us. But there can't be intimacy without authenticity. There can't be intimacy without honesty. I thank you that you give us your word and scripture so that you can be honest with us. And I pray that we would open up tonight and honestly open up our heart to you and say, God, what you need to move, (laughs) what you need to rearrange, I give you permission. Where you were meant to be the cornerstone and the foundation, where I've moved you, step back into the center of my heart and my life. Holy Spirit, I merely ask that you would speak to each one of us tonight as we come out of this sermon. Help us to fix our eyes on you so we can fix whatever needs to be fixed in us. But God, I thank you that you don't want any one of us to leave here feeling like a face in the crowd. And I pray that even as we close in worship, we would feel your gaze as a loving father saying, hey, do you need help with that? And I thank you that we get to simply say yes. God, I'm feeling broken. God, I'm feeling discouraged. God, I'm feeling some type of way, whatever type of way. We're gonna come back after worship for a moment of prayer, but can we stand here tonight and can we worship and can we praise Jesus Christ? And can we, as it says in Hebrews four, maybe just accept the mercy. There's been guilt and shame, accept the grace, accept the mercy and take the help. If you need prayer, we're gonna be available for prayer, but let's worship him tonight as we close.